Hey, everybody. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590. The Fan, I am Ben Ennis. Big show today. Leafs general manager Brad Treliving spoke from Nashville as the NHL draft goes tomorrow, made official what we all knew was going to happen. Sheldon Keefe will be returning as the head coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs for this upcoming season. No announcement of uh, any extension. They're apparently grinding on that one. Um, we'll we'll hear from Brad Treliving. We'll play you some of his media availability. We'll also talk to our pal Frank Cervelli. Later on this hour, he ate a big sandwich yesterday at the NHL Awards. Well done, Frank. Uh, so we'll congratulate him on that and uh, get the, the latest skinny on a bunch of moves across the, the National Hockey League. But the Blue Jays, they're back. They're back at home where they just won a series. In fact, they've won two consecutive series after the off day yesterday. They welcome the, the would-be, the other sliding doors could be, Toronto Blue Jays, the San Francisco Giants. In uh, 1976, they got new ownership and remained the San Francisco Giants. But there was a, a real moment there where they could have been the uh, Toronto Blue Jays. This Giants team, not a ton was expected of them. Lots of rookies played for this team so far this season as we're not yet at the uh, midway point. Eight rookies already playing for this Giants team. They were 500 just 14 games ago, then they won 12 of their next 14. So now they're 10 games over 500. See, it can happen to anybody, maybe even the Blue Jays. Uh, Brandon Belt facing his old team for the first time after 1,300 games, a couple of weird uh, World Series titles as well. But, man, it's it's hard not to start with our next guest, who's kind enough to join us now, Shai Davidi of Sportsnet and Sportsnet.ca. Well, you know what? Why don't I welcome him first? Hello, Shai. Happy Monday, Ben. Happy Monday to you. All right, whatever. I mean, Tuesday? I was going to go with it. You you said Monday. I was like, sure, it's Monday. It sounds right. It's a, it's it's a Tuesday. Monday. Yeah. It's baseball Monday. <laughs> it's, it's Tuesday. Uh, you know who's got a case of the Mondays? Alec Manoa. Um, because he was abysmal. And I know we're, we're going to get more information on this when we hear from John Schneider. But he made his Florida Complex League debut today. And not only did it go poorly, it went like I, it's hard to imagine it going any worse than two and two thirds innings pitched, eleven earned runs on ten hits, two home runs, couple of walks, three strikeouts. But and I know like maybe they were asking him to intentionally give up runs. Um, probably not that, but uh, we'll wait for more details. That seems really bad, though, Shy. Yeah, <laughs> suboptimal. And like the Blue Jays were talking about. A lot of positives that had come out of his uh, his last sim game and some of the progress that they felt that he was making. And, you know, you don't want to judge everything based on the stat line, but I, I think you're going to have to mine pretty hard for some, some nuggets of positivity within that stat line. So I think the Blue Jays will certainly key on things like what did his fastball command look like? What did the slider uh, what did the shape of the slider look like? What was the, what, how did the mechanics play? Uh, but it, it's not exactly a, a stat line that says, you know, he's locked it in and he's ready to, to build and progress from there. Yeah, uh, probably, I'm thinking, uh, probably not going to start on, on Canada Day uh, on Saturday. I think, I, I feel like, Shy, we can rule that one out. Yeah, well, I mean, we, that was kind of ruled out. Yeah. Last uh, Friday, I think it was, and you know John Schneider. I think there had there had been a pathway to it before, and then you know, the Blue Jays pretty pretty solidly said, "Yeah, that's that's not where we're at." And look, you know, the Blue Jays haven't had a timeline on this. Obviously, sooner rather than better would be great because running a four man rotation isn't good. But 
ultimately this is about getting Alec Manoa to, to where he needs to be. Mm-hmm. And, and clearly, you know, that, that, that stat line doesn't suggest that, that, you know, that that's imminent. No, it doesn't. And yeah, we're not going to, we're not going to go nuts and say that he's gone for the rest of the season, but the possibility very much exists. I mean, it existed when he was originally sent down and, and part of the timing of his being demoted all the way to the complex league, I think was because of all the off days leading up to the all-star break. I mean, after the all-star break, will this team, do you think shy continue to operate with a four man rotation and, and have that fifth day when they need it? be a bullpen day i mean we're seeing a giants team that's running a bullpen day lots of teams around baseball are building it into their rotation either way or, or will this team do you think like pivot to a traditional fifth starter once we get to the second half i guess they got to get one first right i think that's part of the equation look to me the piece that you have to consider a bit more right now is what's the situation for the other four right because uh, it's Six of eight starts on just usual rest, no bonus uh, bo- bonus days for Kikuchi, Bassett, and Barrios. And tonight is going to make seven of eight uh, without the benefit of an extra day for Kevin Gosman. And that's going to continue forward on the next turn as well. And eventually there's a cost to that. Yep. So to me, the, the driving force is going to have to be where are the other four guys at? And do they need uh, a little bit of extra recovery time built in? And, and certainly that is useful. The numbers are pretty clear about that. The all-star break coming up will give them a, a little bit of a breather, but not a, a super significant one. So the Blue Jays are well aware of where their other starters are at in terms of their workloads and recovery and are monitoring that closely because Heaven forbid if this team loses another starter, then you know they, they really don't have an answer at that point. Mm. So, you know, to me, to me, that's the driving factor, and you, it'll force the Blue Jays to figure things out one way or the other uh, based on what happens with them. Yeah, it's weird. I'm looking at the Fangraphs' war for the Blue Jays' rotation and and where it ranks in Major League Baseball, and it's 20th. Um, but they are. Their their bottom half or their top half in ERA their their starters ERA is is under four and and keep in mind that that includes uh, Alec Manoa being one of the worst starters in baseball when he was a member of the Toronto Blue Jays I I I know they they only have four starters right now but you look at any of the four and and on any given day they they can give you a, a spectacular outing and all of a sudden you say Kikuchi is reliable Jose Barrios is back to Jose Barrios I. I guess you can talk about Chris Bassett having a bit of a bump in the road and Kevin Gossman's a, a Cy Young candidate. I still look at this rotation, even with only four of the five guys, as, as a strength as, as opposed to a weakness, Shy. Yeah, it's absolutely been a strength. It's really been a stability post for this team. And if not for the starters, you know, who knows where this team might be at. So for sure, and I think that the, the four guys right now deserve a ton of credit because not only are they performing by and large well and have they performed well to this point, you know, it's a tall ask to say, hey, let's go indefinitely with a four-man and skip as many off days as we can uh, and only use a fifth starter when we absolutely have to for, uh, you know, it's been almost a month now and uh, you know, for the foreseeable future, it's going to continue that way. So uh, you know, to me, they've really been pivotal to the team and, and where – what they've accomplished thus far 
And, and, and that's why, you know, the point that I've written about it a few times, and obviously we're talking about it right now, to me, I don't think that we can gloss over it and we have to emphasize the fact that you have to worry about what the, the lack of bonus recovery days uh, and what, what taking that away from them, uh, what, what impact that has down the road. And, you know, the Blue Jays are obviously hoping that Jinjin Ryu continues to make progress and he's a factor uh, late July or early August, if not, if, if not a bit after that. And, and that'll, that'll be obviously a help, but, you know, they need Alec Manoa back there uh, and back in form to, to really bring everything together. No, it's pretty messed up that you can't even like squint and look at somebody who's throwing extended innings in in the in the the system anywhere and say, well, that guy makes sense. Like maybe that guy can you know give us five innings of of starting pitching every fifth day. Like Bowden Francis was having the best year, but he had like, is can they stretch him out to a hundred pitches? I mean, I've liked what I've seen out of out of him and his 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 brief time in the major leagues this season. Does he? Does the possibility ex- exist of him being like just like a traditional starter for this Blue Jays team? Yeah, that's been kicked around, and uh, you know maybe even you know I, I don't know whether the Blue Jays would go that this route this weekend, but they've talked about maybe Bottom uh, Francis getting a traditional start before before the All Star break. Uh, obviously, Trevor Richards uh, would be a factor in that if Trevor Richards isn't needed uh, between now and Saturday, and he's good to go. Uh, you know, given how well he's pitched this season, it's hard not to trust him and say, here, take the ball and go as far as you can with it. Uh, but at the same time, it may get to the point where the Blue Jays have to say to the battle friends, you, you know, step up and, and give us what you've got. And uh, that would be obviously a significant test for him. And, and the Blue Jays haven't seen him in an extended, extended look where, you know, here's the ball, run with it. But, you know, in short stints, he's managed to really keep innings from unraveling and, you know, recovered well if something hasn't gone right, which are some of the things that you like to see. Uh, and, and there's certainly some stuff there that, that makes him uh, an interesting candidate and, and someone perhaps deserving of, the, of a bit of a longer look. Well, how about Trevor Richards himself? I mean, this is a guy, as most relievers are, who was a failed starter, right? Like, he came up to, to the major leagues with Miami as as a starting pitcher, made 25 starts in, in 2018 through 126 in the third innings, in 2019 through 135 in the third innings. And I know you're going to or people are going to point to the fact that he's a two-pitch pitcher. It seems to work pretty well for Kevin Gossman. Like, does the – does the, and I understand now he's pitching in leverage and you don't want to take away that bullet, but you know what's more valuable than, than a guy who can throw a couple innings at the end of a close baseball game? A guy that can throw five or six. Like, would the, would the Blue Jays ever look to, to extending Trevor Richards into a traditional starter? You know, I, I don't think that's been discussed in depth. And there are a few reasons for that. And I think ultimately what you come down to, Ben, is that you're sort of in a boat right now and it's got like five holes and you've got four plugs. <laughs> yeah. And so you're constantly moving around. So like, you know, essentially you're, what you're debating yourself is where do I want to take water, yeah. right? And, you know, does that, does that ultimately help you more than it hurts you? Does that maybe cause Trevor Richards to not perform the same way because suddenly he's being asked for significantly more and you know you're not asking him to go through a lineup once you're asking him to go through it twice or perhaps even more than that uh physically it's 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 a rough transition not everybody can just jump in and uh, and suddenly go from you know 50 60 70 pitches to 100 pitches 
So I, it's it's more complicated, I think it, it appears. And and ultimately, you know, you've gotten to a point where he's having success. You yeah. know, do you want to risk disrupting that uh, when he's in the midst of a very strong year and and contributing in a number of ways? So I I I. I I understand why you're bringing that up, and it's because there are no answers. Mm-hmm. But sometimes just taking uh, an imperfect fit and just trying to shove them in there uh, because you, you need something, uh, you know, you may end up hurting yourself in other ways that ultimately end up being detrimental. Yeah, and the Blue Jays have some recent examples of guys that were pretty good relievers. The Blue Jays tried to transition, and the starters didn't work in uh, Joe Biggini. And, and Thomas Hatch. All right, so I, I know you, you got to get to the, the Brandon Belt media availability. I mean, the Blue Jays are taking on water. Good thing they have the captain, Brandon Belt, who uh, is – it's only 51 games, and he's only hit four homers. But, man, it, it, his absence was felt when he spent time on the IL. Uh, can, can we already say that that was – maybe not uh, – we can't judge the signing as totally successful, but, like, he is – Wow, way more important to this team than I ever realized, especially after he got off to such a horrible start offensively. Yeah, for sure. And look, what he's done since since that very slow start that you mentioned uh, is exactly what you're hoping. I mean, maybe you were looking for a bit more slug or hoping that some of the power might play up uh, outside of uh, outside of uh, AT&T, where there's just uh, it's just a more friendly hitter's environment, but you know, a guy who's been on base, you know, 400 at, at more than 40% uh, of the time and has contributed some important hits and just gives you a professional at bat every time. You know, tough, tough to complain about that. And, you know, the Blue Jays needed someone to emerge from the left-hand side in that 3-4 spot. Uh, Dalton Varsho obviously got some run there, but that might have been asking a little bit too much too soon from him. Uh, you know, made it in hindsight, maybe it would have been starting him lower in the lineup and letting him work his way up would have been better than sort of starting him at four and then seeing what happens. But at, at the same time, the Blue Jays didn't have options right out of the gate because it took Brandon Belt a while to recover uh, after that. Essentially, his first couple of weeks were spring training in the major leagues uh, as he was coming back from that knee, uh, the knee injury. So, uh, ever since he's been the, the type of presence that the Blue Jays have been looking for, uh, it's a real professional at bat. And look, guys on base, that's usually a good thing. <laughs> and uh, again, I, I do feel like in, in another world, maybe there's a bit more power there. That would be, you'd probably in yeah. a vacuum say, I, I'd, I'd take a bit more slug. Sure. Uh, but no one's complaining about a, an OVP in the 400 plus range uh, for an extended period. Yeah, May, he had an OPS of 940 in in uh, 23 games. And, and so far in June, despite spending time in the IL, IL the uh, OPS 930, uh, despite, as you say, the, the lack of slug. But he is getting on base and uh, doing his part uh, as the DH for this team. Uh, the captain, Baby Giraffe, playing as his former team for the first time in his career. Shy, enjoy the game, and, and thank you very much for this. No problem. Goodbye. Goodbye. There goes Shai Davidi to go watch a baseball game uh, against a streaking San Francisco Giants team and a Blue Jays team that's very weird. Like, very, 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 very weird. Hey, they, they, they beat up on the A's in the final game of that series. Congratulations. They all count.
Everybody else got to play the A's, so why shouldn't you? Sweep would have been nice. It was possible. Uh, they did the bare minimum, winning two out of three, and they're well-rested now. Getting some good starts, getting some off days, getting people back from injury. Brandon Belt did in the uh, Miami series, but he's back in the middle of this order. And Vladimir Guerrero Jr. looks like he's supposed to look, hitting a couple of home runs at home during that series. But, as I noted, the idea that Alec Manoa is the savior for this team, that that people are going to be able to tell you, hey, well, the Blue Jays maybe didn't swing for the fences at the trade deadline, but getting Alec Manoa back, it's like a trade. Who can say that they traded for a guy that was top five in Cy Young award voting last year. Not many. Well, that that still may be the reality for this Blue Jays team, but it's it becoming less and less likely, must say. And maybe I was fooling myself into thinking, well, one, that Canada Day was a possibility, but two, that, okay, if not Canada Day, like the, the reason it happened now was because of all the off days and because of the all-star break and this guy's going to lose a bunch of weight and he's going to get in shape and he's going to look like the guy he's supposed to look like. Because that's what we saw for like 50 starts in his major league career. No. And I, I, I can't imagine the type of spin that's going to be put on this performance that makes you feel all that much better about it. I, like shy of like literally he was intentionally giving up runs. Which, I don't know, That's seems like a bizarre plan, but, like, sh- short of that, even if it was literally, hey, the guy, all he's working on is fastball command, so literally we had him throw 60 fastballs right down the middle of the plate. Well, that didn't work either because he had two walks. They gave up two home runs. And these are 18, 19-year-olds who should be starstruck by a guy who is one of the fixtures in Major League Baseball is one of the best pitchers over the last couple of years. So what the hell is it? That's shocking. Shocking, shocking, shocking. And the Blue Jays have to come to the realization or, and, and not that they haven't already, um, come to the understanding that a future for this Blue Jays team in the second half of the season in which they do not have access to the services of Alec Manoa very much is a realistic possibility. And the idea of trading for another starter is, like, priority number one. Shai talked about, like, the, the different leaks in the boat. And, boy, the offense, you'd like it to be better. And you'd like to be able to get hits with runners in scoring position. And, and sure, you'd like a, a few more guys with power. Sure, you, you'd like the 26 man to actually play in baseball games. That all pales in comparison to the fact that this Blue Jays team has four starters right now and nobody knocking on the door and a guy who's in his mid-30s, coming off Tommy John surgery, and they're trying to get into the playoffs and win a World Series. So you got to figure that out. Because even, like, the, the quad-A depth plays have blown up spectacularly, uh, spectacularly in their face. Like, the Drew Hutchison, Zach Thompsons of the world, they can't get people out. So got to work on that. Uh, we'll revisit this topic of conversation, I'm sure, before the end of the program. And and we'll play you some clips from John Schneider's media availability when he explains exactly what the organization is thinking of Alec Manoa's horrific start in uh, the Florida Complex League. Again, if you're just tuning in, two and two-thirds, 11 earned runs on 10 hits, two walks, three strikeouts, a couple of home runs. All right, um, I mentioned that Brad Living, Toronto Maple Leafs, 
general managers spoke today in Nashville a day before they get ready to select 28th in the NHL draft. And while there are plenty of reports, the Maple Leafs are already in the process of interviewing assistants to the head coach. Nothing had been firmed up as far as Sheldon Keefe's returning to the post next season until today. I think probably the next question will be relative to, to contract status. We'll, we'll deal with that at, at the appropriate time. Um, but Sheldon, Sheldon will continue on in there and excited for him to do so. I think, I think Sheldon's got a really good relationship with his players. I think, um, as they say, there's, they, they all think he's a good coach. Um, I think there's a real strong bond. What I took away from it, there's lots of belief both ways. You know, There's belief in the players with the coach, and there's belief from the coach and the players. All right, so you, I mean, I, I, I would imagine that the coach is going to say he has belief in the players. So that would be a tough sell on, on the GM, unless he like indicated to you that he's getting rid of all the players. But yeah, that would be a tough one to like save your job if you're like, no, these guys all stink, and nobody can coach them. That'd be a tough, tough one. That, that, yeah, that you're like George Costanza dragging the World Series trophy behind your car if, if you're saying that. Um, but yeah, it does seem like Brad True Living is indicating that he talked to the Toronto Maple Leafs players and they gave the thumbs up to Sheldon Keefe returning. Um, but obviously, a lot goes into this, not just what the players have to say. Um, and for a guy getting acclimated with, with the new franchise, he also had to get acclimated to his new head coach. He's, he's strong in his beliefs, but he also doesn't think he's got all the answers. And one of the things we talked about is I, I firmly believe we're all um, sometimes better in our second jobs. You see it with coaches. Maybe your second, your, I think there's a little bit of that, you know. Um, I, I, you know, I've talked to you guys about my relationship with Kyle, and he's worked with Kyle a long time. But sometimes I think I can, you know, sometimes a little bit of new, a little bit of fresh can help, a little bit of change. So, um, <clears throat> Yeah, I think it's there's a lot of things that I came away from there, and like it was like we probably met for 17 hours over four or five days. I, he's probably about the third day is like maybe I don't want to stick around with this guy, <laughs> and uh, so once I didn't chase him out of there, I thought well maybe I'd stick around. But uh, no, I came out of there going this is a real bright guy. All right, that's that's too many hours to meet with a human being. Like it, that's just yeah. At a certain point, you're obviously relitigating certain points back and forth. But I think it's an interesting point that he says, sometimes you're better on your second job. Well, you, Brad, th this is still his first job. Like, he's, this isn't his second job. That's Kyle Dubas' second job as he goes to Pittsburgh. But I think what he's alluding to is the thing that our pal Nick Kiprios wrote about in the Toronto Star, that, like, there's a real belief, seemingly, from Brad Treliving that being unshackled from Kyle Dubas getting free reign, having not the guy that's been uh, your professional partner all the way back to, to Sault Ste. Marie over your shoulder, that you can do your own thing, that, that maybe this will be a different Sheldon Keefe that we see this upcoming season. It maybe, and maybe this is wishful thinking, maybe if the Toronto Maple Leafs play in a 60-minute hockey game and their stars don't play well, and the head coach says, hey, the star players who were supposed to play well, who we've leveraged everything and all our future success on, like if they don't play well, it's difficult for us to win. And not to say that they won't play well, but they didn't play well today. If he says that, like Sheldon Keefe did 
and I'm paraphrasing, in a game against the Arizona Coyotes early this past season, he won't the next day have to walk it back and say, I misspoke. Those guys were awesome. And you may have looked at that horrible effort and said, boy, those guys were bad. But you just don't know hockey like I do. So hopefully uh, there'll be a new lease on life for Sheldon Keefe this upcoming season uh, that allows him to perhaps be a little more honest with his players and then a little more honest with the media in re- regards to his interaction with his players. But he will be the, the head coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs in 2023-24 because he uh, won a playoff series, which uh, congratulations on doing that. All right, when we come back, it is uh, still party time in Nashville. Uh, no surprises at the NHL awards other than the guy that selected Connor McDavid as the fifth best option to win the Hart Trophy. Uh, that was the same guy from Pittsburgh who left Austin Matthews off his ballot entirely for the Hart Trophy a season ago. Seth Rorabaugh of the Pittsburgh Tribune Review. Our next guest, he, he sees all the votes. He's the, the head of the PHWA. Frank Saravelli, president of hockey content for dailyfaceoff.com, joins me next as the fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Unrivaled insight, analysis, and opinions on all things Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, it's a unique situation. We've got, we've got, we've talked about Austin, Willie, and, 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 you know, although they're not free agents this year, it, it goes into next year planning and all those sorts of things. So we've got, we've got some players who are UFAs this year. Let's see if, where that goes to, what, what we can or can't get done, what players, you know, where, where we can fit it all in. And then, and then, and then we'll probably have a better idea come July 1. All right, there is uh, Toronto Maple Leafs general manager Brad True Living. As fan drive time continues, I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590. The fan, yeah, the clock is ticking. Specifically on those two, um, as they are extension eligible, headed into their final seasons under contract with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Austin Matthews has a full no-trade clause, which kicks in on July 1st. William Nylander has a modified no-trade clause, which kicks in on July 1st, we've heard reports, well, and, and you know what? Troy Living also addressed this today when um, pressed by the assembled masses in Nashville as the, the Leafs and everybody else gets ready for the draft tomorrow. Um, talked about his meeting with Austin Matthews in Arizona, and he had a funny little quip about it not being as humid as it is in Nashville. Um but yeah, we, we we know that they're trying to hammer something out, and every report we've we've heard about Austin Matthews' likelihood of returning to the Maple Leafs is that it's high, uh, just as far as the term and uh, the value. And our next guest reported that William Nylander is uh, the next 
big hot button issue for the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Brad Tree Living pushing hard to uh, get him re-signed. It's Frank Cervelli, president of hockey content for DailyFaceOff.com, president of the PHWA, eater of chicken sandwiches on television. Congratulations on, on being, uh, I guess, a meme. I don't know. I haven't seen it meme, but I, it, feel, it feels like you can meme it. It was definitely a meme. I mean, I got squirted with a milk bottle yeah. by Biz on international television. So I would I would say that, that that's very memeable. <laughs> I would say that's probably co- uh, correct. But congratulations. It was not cringe. Like, that night is there's a, usually a lot of cringe. Like, I would just say start to finish, not a lot of cringe. And, and you weren't you weren't part of anything cringy. So congratulations. That's like, That was my number one goal heading in was, like, try and have fun with it, but don't be cringy. <laughs> Okay, there's a lot to get to. I got hot chicken with a side of no cringe. Yeah, well done. There's a lot to get to here, but I, I do want to start with, you know, this is the, uh, Twitter was a buzz yesterday when, when the vote started to come down and, and the, the fact that Connor McDavid was not a unanimous selection as the Hart Trophy winner for 22-23, and you are the president of the PHWA, and you tweeted out the link that has the database of all the, the votes and, and who voted for what, and uh, boy, it's, it's Seth Rorabaugh, same guy. Uh, of the Pittsburgh Tribune review that left Austin Matthews entirely off his Hart uh, Trophy ballot a season ago, who had Connor McDavid fifth. Um, is, is that is that just cool? Like, is there is there anything that that comes of that? Um, how, how do you feel about it? How do I feel about it? Um, obviously, it's not the choice that I made. Like, mm-hmm. I I think Connor McDavid was the clear runaway winner, and you know he had a season that is really top five all time in NHL history from an individual perspective. 194 other people agreed with me and voted him in the first place spot. So one, I would say let's not lose perspective of the vast overwhelming majority that Mm -hmm. I think got it right. But here's the thing is, and this is me putting on my, my president cap for a second is, I think we're in a dangerous world when you start to tell people what to think and what to vote. And when you said, will anything come of it? I think the whole point of voting is to get different perspectives. And I obviously I don't agree. And I, it's not how I saw it myself, but I'd like to hear Seth's explanation. And I haven't heard it yet. um, Just to get a line of sight on what he's thinking and what he felt when he he made the choice, like to, to say, because you didn't vote the way everyone else did, you've lost your ability to vote for the future. Or I saw some speculation on media should lose his credentials. Like, no. that's way over the line. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying entirely. And, and yeah, there, there's not a lot of... Yeah, there, talking about objective truth is very difficult here. But I, th- I think, yeah, we can all objectively say that that was, again, like one of, like you said, one of the five greatest regular seasons in, in NHL history. I mean, I, I guess we have to wait for the explanation. I, I don't know how, how much further I want to go. I did look at his Twitter account, and, and there was there was nothing there. Like, what if there is no explanation? What if he's just like, that's how I view hockey? And and uh, you know what? Well, Aust- then that's his right. Yeah. Like, I don't know what, like, the point of being transparent is so that everyone can see yeah. what we were thinking and how we did it. No one owes anyone anything. So if, if like someone is sending out a pack of dogs to to you know prey on Seth Rohrbaugh's social media feed, like you're just you're doing it wrong. And allow people to have the the difference and right of opinion because I think that's what makes this entire thing healthy. 
Yep. And and if nothing else, honestly, we're talking about sports and we're talking about an award that was actually won by the correct guy. Oh, you didn't get to have a unanimous uh, selection. Who at, cares? Yeah, at, but we get to talk about it for a couple of minutes, I guess, on a radio show, which is not bad. And people get to. to we got it. it right. This is what I keep saying every time anyone <laughs> asks every year. Oh, did you? Why did you guys do this? Or why did was did so many people do that? Like, go back in the in the history of time with the awards. I'd say really with the exception of one trophy decision, mm-hmm. and that was, um, uh, you know, way back when Jerome McGinley didn't win the heart mm. on a tie, I'd say overwhelmingly we've gotten it right. Although, I mean, you would say that Austin Matthews winning last year, you know, they got it wrong, but I digress. No, but I, <laughs> I, I appreciated why. Yes. I just, that wasn't my selection. And just in the same way, Guess what? I voted Hampus Lindholm number one for Norris, and yeah. people might think that I have six heads looking at that ballot. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I, I understand it. All right. Um, so, th- so that's a, a weird decision to to, to vote uh, Connor McDavid fifth on your Hart Trophy ballot. Um, is it an odd decision to have the Calgary Flames say, "Hey, Brad, for a living, you can participate in the Maple Leafs draft, but only after we've selected 18th overall? Then you can like, I, I, I hope there's like a WWE." Like an entrance where there's a music, like some music played, and he comes out of the tunnel and then sits at the Leafs' desk. That is the weirdest thing I've ever heard of. I mean, let's consider the alternative here, Ben, which was that first off, the Calgary Flames were planning on not even allowing him to interview for any GM position. Yeah. Let alone where he sits at a table. Oh, like it's. I think kind of in an odd way, they were shamed into allowing him to to talk to other teams and give permission. And if this was one stipulation that they had that stuck in their crawl, then, like, such is life. Yep. No, he's fine with it. And, uh, yeah, uh, I'm sure they have What's no... What's he going to do? No. He got the job. Yes. And he's armed with intel, and he's got a cell phone that he could call someone if need be. That's right. Oh, or or yell across the room. Um, so yeah, you reported on the on the morning show yesterday that that he's uh, grinding away at a William Nylander extension, and he talked about that today, and he also talked about the possibilities that that exist if you know a, an extension is not forthcoming or if the 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 likelihood of an extension becomes low. Do you believe that the, the Maple Leafs will and should trade William Nylander if if they're not close on terms as we approach July? Do I believe they will? Uh, I don't think Brad Tree Living would be afraid to. And I think the only way that that comes up is if they reach a dead end, that there's no viable path to get a deal done. And in that case, yeah, I do think he will be traded. And at that point, you probably should if you've come to that determined, but if an determination, but if and only if that's the case. Mm. So I don't have any indication that they're heading down that path. I think talks to this point, my understanding, have been amicable. And Bradtree Living has a long history dealing with William Nylander's agent, Louis Gross, going back to when he had Johnny Gaudreau and the situation that unfolded in Calgary. And I do think there's some scar tissue there. And I do think the Leafs are going to be extra cautious about having someone like him enter uh, the final year of his deal. But at the same time, I don't think they're operating under any sort of hard and fast rule by any stretch of the imagination. If we don't have him signed by this date, then we must move him. Because I think what you run into is a lot of what the Flames are looking at right now and the Jets of you essentially end up ceding complete and total control to the player 
mm-hmm. where you can be strong-armed into having to only be able to talk to one team to negotiate a trade, and you lose all your leverage. Yeah, I just look at the numbers being bandied about and, and his market value coming off a 40-goal season and 87 points that he's going to be looking at, like, I don't know, 10 million bucks, AAV, and the Austin Matthews extension, whatever it is, it's it's going to be, I don't know, close to 15. Uh, you still have two no. more. No, okay, all right, but, well, more than 12. I mean, just mathematically, and I know the cap is going to go up more than 1 million uh, beyond next season, but, like, mathematically, if you're not moving a Mitch Marner, say, like, do, does it make sense to extend William Nylander at his market value when you have an Austin Matthews extension and when you're still paying John Tavares and, and Mitch Marner into 24-25? I, I personally think that the number for Austin Matthews, whether it's a three-, four-, or five-year deal, is, is close to 13. Uh, I think that's sort of a sweet spot that makes sense for the Matthews camp. And one of the real considerations that they have here as they embark on this path is, first off, they're not in any rush to do it and want to see a complete view of the chessboard and what Brad Tree Living has assembled, which, by the way, in parentheses, includes what happens with William Nylander and how that's dealt with. But then the one of the real considerations for Austin Matthews, who um, is coming off of what we've talked about is a down season, um, that he wants to be able to allow enough money on the Leafs cap and in their system to build a team that has a chance to win. It's not about setting a record. It's not about getting four times 15 as much as he could ask for that, and the Leafs might have to pay it. The idea is, at least as I understand it, is that he wants to win and he needs to find a a spot, whatever that looks like, that pays him appropriately and gives the Leafs some wiggle room to go out and make deals. Frank, that that feels like a departure from what this guy has done throughout the course of his career. And we've talked about it. Yeah, so like when when did this, this realization happen? Just look at any team that's been in the mix to win. Like It took us until this point in time this year for Jack Eichel to become the first $10 million player in the league, AAV-wise, to win a Stanley Cup. Mm-hmm. And it's a simple math equation. Like we, If you look at the way the salary cap rules and, and memorandum of understanding is written, there's a clause in there that really only allows the cap to increase a maximum of five million bucks. So what we could be looking at here is 83 and a half this year, mm-hmm. cup upcoming, followed by 87, followed by 91 or 92, and it kind of keeps increasing from there at least until the CBA is up. So they're going to have a pretty good sense, I think, of of what the cap looks like and what the Leafs are really realistically going to be able to afford. And he wants to, at least is my understanding, play within those rules. Yeah, that's super interesting. So, like, 13 million bucks where, where, yeah. I mean, that is a savings for a guy that just won a Hart Trophy a season ago and scored 60 goals. I mean, obviously, uh, I imagine. Is it, though? What is like, it? Is it a savings? Like, look at look at Nathan McKinnon. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he's got the hardware. He's got the Stanley Cup. And he takes 12 and a half. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, compared to, again, like what or we... Or 12, what, what, what did it end up being? 12, 6? That sounds right. Um, yeah, compared to, to what we've been talking about and, and yeah, the, every indication we've got from this guy going back to taking the five-year deal instead of maximizing his term with the eight years with the, the Maple Leafs and trying to get even more on his second year and, and getting paid professionally in his draft-eligible season, all that, like it... Yeah, I guess when you put it that way, it doesn't sound like a savings. But compared to, like, what what it could have been, it feels like a, a bit of a savings. Now, the term is is the key here. Like, I, I imagine that means that he wants a shorter term? Yeah, I, I think it's somewhere three, four, or five years. Mm-hmm. That's uh, I, Look, these are just general. If I were to – if you were to, like, let's let's place a wager on what kind of range do you think Austin Matthews is in, that's where I would peg it. Uh, so if if he's coming off the board, obviously it's a huge free agent. Uh, that would these are be... big ifs. This is just I just want to no, talk no, to everyone sure. listening. This is all sort of hypothetical and speculation as to what has been out there and floating in the industry. Yeah, and 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 yeah, okay. Um, and I I it wouldn't shock me uh, if well one if that's the 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 dollar amount in the term, but two yeah that that he's a, a extended beyond next season by the Toronto Maple Leafs. Now, that takes one potential large free agent off the board in 24-25, but William Nylander might be out there. Like you, and no offense to, to Michael Bunting, but like we're, we're talking about him legitimately being near the top of this free agent class. Like, How does the fact that next year's available unrestricted free agents, uh, the class of, of potential unrestricted free agents, is is really a lot more interesting than this year. Do you see that as maybe allowing or forcing teams into the the trade route, uh, or or teams keeping their powder dry maybe financially for next off season? I mean, I would love to say that I think that there's enough teams that have the foresight out there to make decisions based on that data or or information. I think the truth, though, is, one, there's a lot of teams that are just focused on the year in front of them. And two, so many operate under the assumption now that the really good players in this league, Mm -hmm. no one's letting those pieces go. And so I think, you know, kind of from here on out, the big decisions on all the really worthwhile pieces are going to be made a year ahead of time, kind of like what we're seeing now with Hellebuck and Shifley and... Lindholm and all these guys that are on the market, it's because the team doesn't want to let them go for nothing and have them actually hit the market. And now they want to be able to cash in and get something in return before that happens. Yeah, and one of the the guys you didn't mention there, Pierre Luc Dubois, like uh, it it feels like we're at the finish line between we uh, between the the Jets and and the Kings. Like, what are you hearing in in that re- regard? Very close. Um, not done yet. Working on a lot of the details that need to go in place in order to pull off an 18 an eight-year sign and trade and i can tell you that sort of what's happened in the background that's allowed us to kind of confirm that this is happening is i believe the montreal Canadiens checked in with the jets before pulling the trigger on the alex newhook trade uh just to understand hey what's going on with pierre-luc dubois we want to make sure we're out and i was told that it was a short conversation and that the Jets seemed laser-focused on getting something done with the Kings on Dubois. 
Uh, what about the Flames and Elias Lindholm? As the, the exodus, uh, we expect to be large, uh, leaving Calgary. Uh, if, if you have somebody who, who wants to stay, doesn't that feel like that guy has, has all the leverage in the world in, in negotiating power? That's kind of the problem with all of these guys is they all own the leverage. Um, they, they can control Pierre-Luc Dubois. He could have said to the Jets, and, and frankly, he may have actually said to the Jets, the only place I want to go is Los Angeles. Yeah. What are they going to do for a trade otherwise? You, you know that the player is saying to them, I'm only going to re-sign here. Why would anyone else, why would any other team step up and trade for him? So that same thing has the potential to play out for Lindholm and to Foley and Hannafin. I don't get the sense that all of that's happening yet. And in fact, the, the Flames are really still making a hard push to try and keep Lindholm. Now, when it comes to the rest of the group, like Shifley, like all these guys have all the same leverage that puts it kind of in a difficult spot for teams to be able to maximize returns. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eric Carlson also has a no-move clause, but he wants the hell out of San Jose. And, and his contract is so difficult, so onerous to move that, yeah, I, I don't mm-hmm. think beggars will be choosers. Uh, so that being said... I mean, do you think this is this is an offseason after the guy wins the Norris yesterday that we see something worked out between the San Jose Sharks and, and their ability to move off of Eric Carlson? It's such a hard contract to move. It's so rare to have a Norris Trophy winner move in the summer after. I would handicap the chances then that Carlson moves as 10%. Like, it's not looking good because... It's not just having to wedge Carlson's contract onto your books. And some teams have, you know, gone through the exercise of what does Eric Carlson look like on our cap at 20% retained by the Sharks. The problem is as you continue to ratchet up the amount of money retained, that's just more that the Sharks want to get from you in a return. Mm -hmm. And I don't have any real indication yet that the Sharks have properly value the idea of moving on from Carlson and what that freedom and flexibility might create for their cap. And so we're kind of in this holding pattern or position where it's uh, Carlson wants to go. There are teams that are interested, but only to a certain extent. And the Sharks, I want to know how motivated they are to make this happen. And that's why I kind of peg it at 10%. Um, how do we feel about the, the, the awards and the draft being held in, in the same locale and it being Nashville at this time of year? Uh, well, I'm standing outside and I now want to burn my clothes. So thank you for that. <laughs> uh, two, I love the idea of having them in the same place because less travel. Like I can remember once taking a charter at five o'clock in the morning in Vegas, just standing there in the lobby of the hotel with my bag, uh, obliterated absolutely hung over and then now having to sit on a charter for five hours to buffalo yeah um yeah not ideal so the no. fact that there's less travel more people flocking to the same city more conversations trade talks free agents agents are here everything's happening in nashville and you know what that means man i'm just trying to stay hydrated yeah well done uh especially after eating all that that spicy hot chicken sandwich uh yesterday frank uh, well done with the, the, the lack of cringe. Uh, well done on, on the breaking news. Uh, well done on this radio hit, as always. Thank you, sir. Thanks, man. Have a good one. You too. There's Frank Sarvelli, president of hockey content for dailyfaceoff.com, president of the PHWA. And that's a tough job, no doubt. 
And I was going to say it's a tough situation how to deal with voters who are so, like, insanely off base. But I think it's pretty simple. I think it's what he said, that as much as you can disagree and it be so close to objectively true that it, it, it is objectively true that Connor McDavid is not fifth place on the Hart Trophy ballot of anybody. Uh, it's not. It is still subjective. Like, you can come up with any... You can come up with a rationale. Now, it's insane, and, and it's not going to convince me, but you can say, well, you know what? I, I believe Connor McDavid doesn't have a, a winning attitude. And until he wins the Stanley Cup, I cannot, in good conscience, vote him number one on my Hart Trophy ballot. That's insane. It's an explanation. And I, I, I guess you're allowed to have it if you, you vote on those awards. And, I mean, there is a, a, there's a, a fallout to, to making a decision like putting Connor McDavid fifth on your Hart Trophy ballot. It's that now you're, you're like, your credibility is a little bit shot unless you come out and explain exactly why you did it or you talk about it being a mistake. If you read Seth Rorabaugh of the Pittsburgh Tribune Review this season as a fan of the Pittsburgh Penguins and you put any stock into his opinion, I mean, maybe you have less stock in his opinion going forward. Uh, we'll see if he, he comes forward and uh, gives us an explanation as to why he made that insane decision. All right, Toronto FC, they're kind of a club in disarray right now. I mean, they just fired their head coach. They hired a GM today, so so that's good. They named former defender Jason Hernandez as general manager today, but they are the most expensive team in Major League Soccer, and they're second from the bottom in the Eastern Conference. And... They have two former Ita uh, Italian national team players who apparently dislike each other. There's infighting. They got uh, Richie Larea who might depart at the end of the season. Plus, uh, Canada soccer might go broke. Like, they may declare bankruptcy. So, it's, a, it's a, not a great time for Canadian soccer. I mean, the Canadians did make it all the way to the final of Nations League before getting demolished 2-0 by the Americans. And they start their quest for another Gold Cup title tonight playing Guadalupe down at BMO Field. We'll talk to our pal Josh Cloak of The Athletic about that. He was also down in Nashville attending Brad Tree Living's media availability ahead of tomorrow's draft. It's the Fan Drive Time. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Dive deep into Toronto sports and the NFL. The J.D. Bunkus Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Uh, Blue Jays baseball returns to your radio waves, television waves today on Sportsnet, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Blue Jays starting a three-game series against the San Francisco Giants tonight. Uh, we have a lineup, Brandon Belt, in there as the DH. Today hitting third, Vlad 
hitting fourth at first base. Dalton Varsho playing center field, so no Kevin Kiermeyer today. Is Kevin Biggio playing uh, second base, trying to capitalize on the hot hand. Whit Merrifield is in left field. We'll we'll bring you some John Schneider sound, especially if he talks about what happened to Alec Manoa today in the Florida Complex League, giving up 11 earned runs uh, when we hear it. Uh, so stay tuned for that. But right now, let's talk to your friend and mine, Josh Cloak of The Athletic, uh, all over Toronto FC and and their hirings and firings and 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 the uh, and Canada soccer starting the Gold Cup. But in Nashville right now, as we get set for the NHL draft tomorrow, I saw you uh, in uh, Brad for Living's media availability today, Josh. Uh, what was your major takeaway from that? Yeah, there was a few takeaways. I mean, I think the big one that a lot of people suspected um, is that Sheldon Keith will be back uh, as head coach. Uh, next year um, I, you know Brad Tree Living didn't say there was an extension on the table but he did say that that was something that the team would look at throughout the summer um, and that makes a lot of sense right if you're Sheldon Keith you don't want to go into next season on a one-year deal we kind of we saw how that worked out with Kyle Dubas but that that was the big takeaway that was the first thing he was asked about and I think you know to me what what stuck out to me was you know, how much Brad Tree Living likes Sheldon Keefe's ability to evolve and, and how much he, he likes the ability to, to kind of change and, and work with perhaps, you know, some semblance of a new roster. So that was probably the big takeaway. I mean, the, the second one for me, being a bit of a draft or prospect enthusiast, is that, mm. you know, uh, Brad Tree Living said it, it feels likely that the team keeps their first-round pick, 28th overall. I mean, you'd have to go back to 2017 for the last time the Leafs actually made their own first-round pick. So that feels like a bit of a change. He could be bluffing. We'll see. But his inclination was to keep the pick. So that was the other takeaway. So, yeah, Keith and the first-round pick are the big takeaways because nothing really new to report Mm. yet on on Matthews and Nylander. Yeah, and and there wasn't anything explicitly said about those. I I did take something away from the question being asked about assurances given, and I guess it was an allusion to the the report that Brendan Shanahan in calls to the core four said, you guys are going to be back, and that he said, hey, there's no assurances in sports, which doesn't sound like much, and that that seems obvious. But honestly, a question that was answered very differently by by Kyle Dubas over the years as far as, and maybe not so much this past offseason where he kind of did indicate that maybe – Bigger changes were afoot. But, yeah, this was a guy that was staunch in, in every postseason media availability saying, we're running it back, we're running it back, we're not giving up on these guys. That 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 I didn't hear that necessarily from Brad Tree Living in, in today's media availability. No, what we heard was him kind of saying, you know, I'm confident in my ability to bring everyone back until, you know, things happen. Um, and it's kind of a, you know, a refreshing bit of honesty from the Leafs GM. I mean, he can only say so much, and, and I, I get that. Um, but you know, the draft over the next few days is the time where you're going to get all these general managers together, you know, in a big room and you're, you're going to get, you know, conversations happening that, that wouldn't have happened a few weeks ago. And, and maybe that means trades popping up and maybe that means players being moved off the Leafs roster and their salary cap picture looking a lot different, right? Because I mean, who wouldn't want to bring, I mean, at least personally, who wouldn't want to bring Matthews and Nylander back? But so much is dependent on on what their salary cap situation looks like and and how much they can afford. So I think that kind of remains to be seen, like what what the big picture for them is. Um, You know, another thing worth worth mentioning, um, perhaps not as sexy, but, you know, Brad Tree Living also said that 
he was prepared to go into next season's training camp with three goalies on the roster, Matt Murray, Ilya Samsonov, and Joseph Wall. Um, I think we all kind of, and by we all, I mean most media members, kind of came out of last season thinking that Matt Murray might not be back Mm -hmm. in a Leafs sweater next year, but perhaps he is. And, And, you know, again, you can only say so much in these things, but that's something to consider too, is that, you know, Joe Wall might be starting next season as a Marley. Um, but again, I think we'll probably be having very different conversations in three or four days after the draft is done. Yeah, yeah, talk is cheap. And in fact, yeah, you're like incentivized to lie at these media yeah. availabilities as we approach the draft. But yeah, no, I, I definitely... I, I made note of that, too, that he talked about, hey, Joseph Wall had a great end to this past season, doesn't necessarily always correlate into a great start to the upcoming season, which, yeah, I, I'm with you. It kind of, like, indicated, oh, maybe he could be ticketed for a return trip uh, to the Marlies, and and maybe that means that Matt Murray's coming back, or or maybe it means that Connor Hellebuck is about to be acquired. Who knows? There's a world of possibilities. Um, Josh, did you expect to be writing Toronto FC stories from Nashville? Uh, I thought that the story that I wrote yesterday, or I guess went up today um, on The Athletic about what kind of head coach TFC will look to next, I thought I would have been writing that story a few weeks ago, if I'm being honest. like I, I, I genuinely didn't think that, that Bob Bradley would kind of go as long as he had, especially after the, the reporting that we did at The Athletic a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. which kind of detailed the, the chaos behind the scenes and you know how there were members of, of TFC's roster that were organizing clandestine meetings to, to have Bob Bradley fired. Um, you know, I, I guess I'm a little bit surprised that it sort of took this long, especially considering Bob Bradley had, you know, only one win in his, his last 11 games. Um, but look, I mean, TFC are still, it's, it's, it's MLS. They're still strangely, you know, in contention for a playoff spot. They can rattle off three or four wins, and we're having a different conversation, but you know, I, I, I just think with Bob Bradley, it, 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 his, his time had come. The results kind of spoke for themselves. And if you're Bill Manning, TFC's president, you feel a lot of pressure to get into the playoffs and to, to showcase to ownership. Look, this is why we spent big on Lorenzo Insigne and Federico Bernadeschi. Like these are huge costs for, for TFC and MLSE. Um, and you have to do everything you can to turn those costs into like literal money at the gate for, mm-hmm. for playoff games. So if that means, you know, firing Bob Bradley and, and hoping to get that kind of new coach spark to get you into the playoffs, I guess that's why the decision was made when it was. Yeah, it's it's so much money, in fact, that Toronto FC is the highest payroll in, in Major League Soccer and they're second last in the Eastern Conference, and they just fired a guy that is, frankly, like a legend in MLS and in Bob Bradley and, and the dad of the captain and, like, a guy that's an, an, an all-time member of Toronto FC and an MLS Cup winner. I mean, I know that the, the championship seasons are not that far in the rearview mirror, but it, it does feel like we're trending back towards lack, laughing stock status here, Josh, when we're talking about this franchise. Like, how close to that are we? Feels perilously close, doesn't it? I think something that came out of today that probably isn't being talked about enough is how Jason Hernandez was named general manager. Um, Jason Hernandez, former player, and Jason Hernandez, who had kind of been working behind the scenes with the club in, in, um, you know, mostly a salary cap role and dealing with agents when it comes to new signings. I think that's something that's really been missing 
with Toronto FC. If you go back to those glory days you were talking about, you had a president in Bill Manning who was trying to essentially sell the club, you know, within the local market. You had a general manager in Tim Bezbachenko that knew, you know, MLS really well. You had a great assistant GM in Corey Ray, and then you had a head coach in Greg Vanny. And everybody really excelled at their separate jobs. But those four jobs have kind of been consolidated into two jobs, right, with Bill Manning and then Bob Bradley serving as both sporting director, which is a general manager job, um, and head coach. And I think that became really problematic when so much responsibility was placed at the hands of so few people. So if anything, perhaps this move to kind of separate the head coach and the sporting director is a step in the right direction, but you need people that, that understand the, the Canadian market. You need people that really understand MLS. Um, and you would think that that was the case with Bob Bradley. But you also need people, if you're Toronto FC and you're, you're going to continue to spend big on European players, you need players that can manage these big egos. So it's a long checklist. Um, and I, I don't know if they're close to, to finding someone who can tick all those boxes, but we'll see, I guess. Yeah, and you mentioned the general manager and maybe taking some of the the the, the work off the plate of, of the, the manager, the head coach like uh, Bob Bradley was and being sporting director. I viewed it as, hey, maybe Bill Manning understanding that, yeah, like he needs to be more hands-off when it comes to personnel decisions because in that great piece that you, you wrote on The Athletic, I mean, you, you detailed some of the the processes that, that Bill had had gone through to acquire those those Italian national team members that it was like uh, just a publicly available you know, uh, rumor uh, website about who's out of contract. Um, that that seemed like a big issue. Is, th- is this like a, hey, Bill Manning, at least kind of sort of putting his hand up and saying, you know what, maybe, maybe somebody else here should be looking at uh, the personnel decisions. I mean, as much as I would like to say that anything that, that we wrote at The Athletic directly contributed to this kind of change, <laughs> I mean, that would be a fantastic boost to my ego. But look, I... I think this is kind of the writing has been on the wall with this for a while. And so many people that we talked to for that story outlined how, you know, presidents shouldn't necessarily have the kind of say in soccer decisions the way that that Bill Manning does. Bill Manning has plenty of experience, but, you know, in MLS and, and in the North American sports world, but his his experience is based largely on kind of selling the team. Mm-hmm. Right. And and I. Uh, I just think soccer is such an idiosyncratic sport um, and understanding players can be so difficult. And you just, and I wrote this yesterday, there's no other job in MLS like, you know, working for TFC because you have huge spending capabilities that MLSE brings you. You have the expectations to win, especially after, you know, 2015 to 2017. And you have this Canadian pride piece that comes into it. No disrespect to Montreal and Vancouver, but you know, TFC is the biggest Canadian team. Um, and so there's there's responsibility there. And Bill Manning understands this to, to, to bring in Canadian national team players and have them play. So it's a really kind of difficult job, job, job. And I just think the more that you put that job on, on one person, the harder it is to do it well. Yeah, I I enjoyed the, the piece that you wrote uh, yesterday, I guess, went up today. And yeah, I was thinking about that because, yeah, Bill Manning talked about, hey, trying to appeal to... The, the, the people with the Italian lineage and heritage in the city of Toronto in going out and yeah. signing those former Italian national team members. But yeah, that, that hey, keeping a Richie Larea, having a Jonathan Osorio, that there's there's a real marketability about Canadian soccer stars now, Josh, that 
that maybe those guys are going to sell more tickets than they would have in the past because people actually know who they are now. I mean, we're three years away from World Cup games being played at BMO Field, which even when I still say that out loud, it's it's wild (laughs) to think that that's going to be the case, that I won't have to travel to the middle of the desert to, you know, to cover a World Cup game. I can just hop on the GO train and, you know, down the, the, the QEW to, to cover the World Cup. But look, this is important, and this is something that Bill Manning has not shied away from, is that he wants to spend big on European players, but he also wants more Canadian national team players to be playing in, you know, for TFC than any other Canadian team. So these are the two kind of, I guess, dichotomies, we can call them, that Bill Manning is, is working with. And, and he fully understands that, you know, over the next three years, the Canadian national team are going to become, you know, public-facing players who, who you know, are going to be marketable. Um, but again, you need someone to, to be able to recruit, you know, Canadian national team players, and you need someone that, that understands kind of how difficult it can be being a Canadian player. Um, and I think that's important to consider when you move forward and think about who the next coach of TFC would be. We saw Andrea Pirlo, who was kind of rumored to be in the fold as, as someone that could appease the, the Italians as the next head coach. He was hired today by Sampdoria. Like, perhaps, you know, Bill Manning needs to look, just keep things domestic and maybe look at CPL coaches, maybe look at up-and-comers who understand the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that would, you know, go a long way to, to speaking to fans that, that feel that, you know, TFC have lost their way a little bit. Yeah, and if you want to speak to a Canadian national team member, all you have to do is just jump on the Rouge flight uh, in economy class, and and maybe you'll see one like Richie Larea and a bunch of those Canadian national team members who flew back from Vegas in the final of of the the Nations League uh, match uh, against the Americans on Rouge. We talked to to Richie yesterday, and he downplayed it, and he talked about, hey, that's I'm not worried about that. I'm just worried about the product on the field. But Josh, um, this is a, a, a a Canadian soccer association that has had its men's program reach a world cup for the first time in 30 plus years, unprecedented success for the women's team. Um, They're going to play a gold cup match tonight, as long as the rain holds off and yeah, tickets are expensive, but I was looking at how many are available. It's not a ton. Like I I think they're going to do well against Guadalupe of of all teams. How is it possible that Jason DeVos is talking about this, the, the potential of, of Canada soccer declaring bankruptcy? Because it's so difficult to get to a World Cup. And the investment that, you know, we see that the Germanys and Englands of the world make, those organizations, you know, have the experience and they've, they've, they've built up kind of a, a, just a, a bank of financial resources over the years that Canada soccer hasn't been kind of prepared to do, right? I, I, I think it's obvious to everyone. I mean, it was obvious to, to me, at least, being in Qatar and seeing this team, the talent on the field with the Canadian men's national team has lapped every component hmm. off the field with Canada soccer. And it's not even close. So they're playing catch up. The entire organization is playing catch up. Did it cost a lot to get this team to Qatar? And by that, I mean, you know, funding private charter flights to get the team in and around Central America, extra days of camp to make sure this team was prepared. Yeah, like there was talent and then there was so much that went into it. Once it became clear early on in the qualification process that Canada had a real chance to go to the World Cup, they had to spend 
right? Canada soccer had to outlay. They really had to dip into, you know, I guess the the analogy I can think of is they had to dip into their savings account. They had to dip into their rainy day fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and now they're kind of finding, whoa, if we want to continue on day to day without that rainy day fund, we're in a bit of trouble. So no one's necessarily, I don't know if it's a an issue of things being at fault here, I just don't think that rainy day fund um, was large enough to kind of sustain a World Cup run and then kind of what comes next, if that makes sense. So so what's the solution here? And I know I'm putting you in a position of being an economist here, which, yeah, and, and we don't have access to all the financials either, which is a, a problem, Josh, and, and certainly as, you know, as a tax-paying Canadian, I'm, I'm, I'm contributing to... The, the funds for Canada Soccer, who receive uh, $5 million uh, annually f- uh, from the federal government, it appears. I mean, so what is the problem? Like the CSB thing, like people have heard about that, that, that Canada does not control its own media rights. But I don't know how much money there is to be made off that anyways. We're talking about Canada against Guadeloupe tonight. Like that would be what we're talking about. Is there a big market to, to, to sell that? And, and the Gold Cup, maybe, maybe bigger than before. And, and you know what, Canada, it's not like they're not getting anything. They're getting whatever, $4 million bucks from CSB. There, there's been this talk of this like... Um, the, the the corporate Canada maybe not stepping up here or or that you know that, that there's 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 um, marketing rights that haven't quite been maximized here like it it, it does not I understand what you said but it yep. the, 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 the the success should take care of everything right like the other stuff should catch up eventually that this team has been to a World Cup is going to another one that is real good made it to a Nations League final like how do we solve this? I mean, if I had that answer, you know, I, I, they hopefully would be building statues of me outside of the <laughs> field. Um, look, this might be, I, I might be living in a bit of a utopia here, but I genuinely believe, first of all, you need every single stakeholder here. And I'm talking about, you know, the high-ranking members of the CSB. You need high-ranking members of Canada Soccer and you need high-ranking members of the national team to all get into a room for a few days and literally understand what everybody is working with. I think that's something that has been lacking up until Jason DeVos took over. And I talked to multiple national team players in Vegas and they said that the the process is getting better now that DeVos is involved. But before that, nobody had answers, right? And, and, And nobody was able to offer answers in a transparent way. So I think if you were to talk to a lot of national team members, they would still say, well, we don't know everything about the CSB deal. And then if you talk to people at the CSB, they would say, well, we, you know, we don't know if, if our message has been communicated clearly enough. So we can talk about transparency, but I just think there's an openness and an honesty that's kind of been missing. The big task that Jason DeVos has, and perhaps the first step towards kind of making a, a deal and financial feasibility a, a reality is Jason DeVos convincing national team players these are the hard realities that we are working with. And if that means that for the next little bit, you won't be able to kind of travel in the same way or have the same perks that you did during qualifying, so be it. But if we want to play games, perhaps we're going to have to kind of cut corners a little bit financially, right? Like what's it going to take? Is it going to take Jason DeVos saying, These are the realities of how much we can pay you. If you don't want to attend a national team camp, then that's on you. We'll pick someone else. Like maybe that's the reality, right? Yeah, that's scary. 
or you it know, is. yeah, or the possibility exists that they they will not play in that upcoming international window in the fall, which was something that was alluded to in the report. I mean, for for a team that is, you know, has sparing opportunities to play big games, play with each other. I mean, the Gold Cup and Nations League, and I get that, but there will there will be no World Cup qualification upcoming because they will automatically qualify for the World Cup. What what does missing an international window like what might happen in the fall do to this program? Well, you're going, you're going to take a little bit of a hit in your FIFA rankings, right? And then that would be, you know, that's under the assumption that whoever Canada would play, they'd win and their FIFA rankings would improve and that would help them get kind of better games against the, the likes of these kind of top choice opponents that they want to play. Uh, I, I think more than anything, it, it's a harsh term, but like it's just a little bit of embarrassment, yeah. right? To have your team literally not play and maybe that's what what needs to happen but you know John Herdman was very upfront about the fact that you know I, I think I'm paraphrasing here but he essentially said Canada hasn't gotten serious about trying to win a World Cup that they're hosting I just think the expectations for everyone needs to shift mm-hmm. right like is anybody really thinking is anybody really agreeing with John Herdman in the, the sense that like Canada can win the 2026 World Cup I would love to eat my words three years from now I would love that. But I think we have to be kind of honest about what this Canadian team is. They are still a team on the rise. And while playing, you know, like I said, the likes of a France or a Germany, that would be fantastic from a visibility point of view. But those aren't the teams Canada should be looking to beat right now. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any shame in trying to book kind of friendlies against mid-tier opponents that might not cost as much to book, but can still offer a challenge to this national team. So I I just think there's a, a lot of honesty and transparency, transparency and, and expectations that are missing because, like, you, you get excited, right? Yeah. They go to the World Cup. Yeah, you think, sick. like, wow, things can happen, <laughs> right? But, uh, like, we have to be honest. Like, Canada's performance at the World Cup was disappointing, and that's putting it politely. So maybe if we shift uh. the expectations... Then, then maybe we can get somewhere else. Oh, Josh, they, they played a full 90 against Belgium and, and could have easily uh, gotten a result, if not three points in that game. And then they were up 1-0 against Croatia. Everything was possible, wasn't it? And now here we are. They, they scored a goal, but lost all three matches at the World Cup. And, and Canada soccer is talking about declaring bankruptcy. It's been a wild couple of months, I would say. It, it has been, but again, like... <laughs> These are kind of the growing pains that organizations go through. Mm. They really, really are. Um, and I just think there, there needs to be a, a, just a shift in, in what everybody believes is kind of capable right now yeah. leading into 2026 with this team. Like, I'll put it to you. Like, what would be successful? What would be a successful World Cup in your eyes for this men's national team in 2026? Well, it's hard not to look at the incremental steps along the way and, like, getting a result or a win, you know? Like, it's like it would be hard not to... And, and I guess this is an expanded World Cup, so maybe the expectation should be more than that. But, yeah, the, the way they acquitted themselves outside of the 90 minutes, again, against Belgium, and, yeah, maybe Alfonso Davies shouldn't have taken that first, that, that, that kick. But, no, it would, like, anything short of, of having a win in the group stage, I think, would be some level of disappointment. Um, and, and, yeah, the, this was, I think, Josh, in looking back, and I don't want to keep you forever, but, like, I, I think in, in, in looking back, uh, it was such a shock to, to qualify for Qatar that this was going to be the return to the World Cup for this this team for the first time in, in like almost 40 years now. Right. And then, you know, the, what would the expectations have been then? It would have been to, yeah, score a goal, get a result. I think 
it's it's a win. Um, yeah, the, any idea of, of winning a World Cup is, I mean, beyond a pipe dream. But, yeah, three points would be nice, I'd say. So figure out the type of teams that you're going to play in the World Cup and figure out the, the type of beatable teams that you're, you, you know, again, you could beat in the World Cup and start trying to book friendlies against those kinds of teams. Mm-hmm. Right? Let's be, let's be honest about our expectations and our capabilities for this team. Um, and then you can go from there because I, I, I think, and look, I'm guilty of it too. Dude, I wrote a book about this national team because it's hard not to kind of get swept up in the whole thing. Um, but I think the World Cup was kind of the great equalizer. Yeah. And I think a lot of people need to kind of go back to the drawing board and understand how do we get back there, but how do we do it kind of sustainably and make sure that it's not a one-off because... You know, when you consider the depleted financial resources, if they weren't hosting in 2026, would it, would it be a guarantee that they would get back? I don't know. Yeah. Um, and those are kind of, that's the approach that I think we need to be dealing with because becoming a quote-unquote soccer nation, which I don't think we are yet, that's not going to happen overnight. No, it's hard to call yourself a soccer nation when you're, uh, you're governing bodies uh, talking about declaring bankruptcy. That's a tough one. Uh, Josh, thanks so much for, uh, for, uh, uh, for doing this today and, and great reporting on, on TFC and the uh, Canadian national team and the Leafs as well. Thanks, man. Anytime. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Josh. This is Josh Cloak of The Athletic in Nashville getting said for the NHL draft, which is tomorrow, and uh, Connor Bedard is going to be selected first overall to the Chicago Blackhawks. Also today, like there's so much information coming out of uh, National Hockey League circles, and some of it is rumors, some of it is trades. And today was schedules. Everybody's schedule being released today, including opening night, which sees the Chicago Blackhawks opening up their season against Sidney Crosby and the Pittsburgh Penguins, which will be a fun little game. All right, when we come back, Maple Leafs do own a first-round pick by the fact they trade them all away, like they, they got one back, they got the Bruins pick. It's 28th overall. Brad Living said he's going to use it, or at least he's leaning towards using it. We'll, uh, we'll talk to uh, Sportsnet's prospect analyst, Sam Cosentino, next. As the fan drive time continues, I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in Leafsland. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Drive time, Sports 590 The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Center of the Hockey Universe in Nashville, Tennessee, this week had the NHL Awards yesterday. No surprises there. We have the NHL Draft tomorrow. There will be no surprises at the top as Connor Bedard will go number one overall to the Chicago Blackhawks, who open up their season, parenthetically, on a five-game road trip. And that's got to be like concert Somebody's got to be into that arena in Chicago that forces the Blackhawks to to wait until like the second, third week of the NHL season to debut their prize prospect at home. Um, but yeah, they open up the season in Pittsburgh against Sidney Crosby and the Pittsburgh Penguins. Bedard going to go number one overall tomorrow. After that, though, lots of intrigue. Let's talk to 
our draft guru at Sportsnet. It's Sammy Cause, Sam Cosentino. How's it going, man? I'm doing great, Ben. Great to talk to you. What's going on over there? Oh, just it, absolutely everything, man. Um, just absolutely everything. All right, so let's let's uh, you know what? Let's start at the very top because I, I know we're all well versed in in Connor Bedard. Um, I do remember the the Connor McDavid hype and and how how real it was and and how excited the people of Edmonton were to win yet another draft lottery. Let's just maybe compare those expectations, like n- not expectations actually, because honestly, we just saw one of the best seasons ever put forth by anybody on a National Hockey League ice surface last year in, in Connor McDavid. And he's already like, what, like a top 20 player in the history of the sport. But like, can you compare the hype going into the draft for both McDavid and Bedard going into tomorrow? Yes. And so the hype at, at that time with McDavid, like there was always Eichel lurking in the background. Not that he was ever going to go first, but, you know, you had the Tim Murray stuff when the draft lottery was lost, lost by Buffalo. And there was always Eichel kind of, there's Connor McDavid and then Eichel. I think with this draft class, it is Connor Bedard and it is Connor Bedard and it is Connor Bedard. Yeah. And the thing that I go back to is it, the second he was granted exceptional status, they go into into COVID, so he ends up going to play uh, U18s in Sweden, then on the U20 team, then he comes back, plays in the bubble, goes to the other teams. So all of these games at various events at different levels, as a young player against different competition, his all the games that he's played previous to, to this draft, since he was granted exceptional status, equal out to a goal per game and two points per game. And I think that says everything about what this guy is all about and how special he really is. Yeah, he's amazing. Um, there's, there's a lot of guys that I've seen that have been written about behind him, and including Adam Fantilli, who, you know, could have been first overall selections in, in other years. But let's talk about the depth of this draft because Maple Leafs have to wait until 28 uh, to select in the first round if, in fact, they hold on to that pick. But, like, outside of the guy who this draft will be remembered for, like, how would you evaluate this draft as far as depth? And, like, if you're in a, a late first-round position, is this one where you, you want to have a pick? Oh yeah, I think there. You know, there's there's going to be those uh, seven, what nine teams rather that don't have a, a first rounder that would be clamoring to get in, and those conversations will pick up probably as early as Calgary at 16. But in terms of the depth of this draft class, it has a little bit of everything, uh, including multicultural talent from Czechia, from Slovakia, uh, from Canada, the United States, Austria, uh, really all over the place, Russia as well. So. That's the first element that sticks out to me. The second part is there's probably that tier of, of bigger forwards in, in Carlson uh, and Adam Fantilli that sit in behind uh, Connor Bedard. So six, 390-pound guys with lots of room for growth. So that separates them from what is a, a really good class of more average to slightly below average size forwards. And you're talking about uh, Braden Yeager or Zach Benson or Riley Height, uh, you know, the list goes goes on. Otto Stenberg, all of these guys that are in that 5'10", 5'11", range, 170, 180-pound range, that obviously will have some time to grow. But I think there's a large number of players that fit in that class. And I guess the last thing I'd say, Ben, is there's a tier of three defensemen that I believe will go in the top 15 picks. It starts with David Reinbacher, the Austrian. He goes top uh, six or seven. Then you have Axel Sandin Palika, who I projected to go nine to, to Detroit. And then Thomas Willander at a really good end of the season with a lot of recency bias working in his favor, also a Swedish defenseman. 
So, yeah, you talk about the size of those guys and, and getting a, a chance to, to fill out. I mean, only four first-rounders uh, selected last season played in the NHL, and only uh, the first overall selection, Slavkowski, played double-digit games, and it was only 30-some-odd and obviously was not not ready for the National Hockey League at that level. Like, outside of Bedard, who's going to play, if he's healthy, 82 games in the National Hockey League. How many how many guys are actually, like, ready for the National Hockey League right away in this first round, do you think? I, I, I think... Fantilli and Carlson would, would both be ready and could play games. Now, with Fantilli, you have the idea of a guy who, uh, you know, probably is looking at his Michigan team and saying, if we go back there, we can make a deep run, and maybe I'll do the Owen Power thing and give this thing one more year. And I think whoever selects him is going to be saying, you know what, that developmental year, it works just fine for us. Go get bigger and stronger. Utilize that college uh, schedule, um, you know, to, to add some, some muscle and some weight to your frame. Uh, I think Leo Carlson, I mean, based on what I saw as a top-line center at the at the Worlds, the men's Worlds, you know, playing alongside Lucas Raymond was, in fact, a, a driver of play and not just a guy who was a passenger on that line. So he would have potential, but there's also a contractual situation that most likely will put him back in Sweden for at least one more year. So I'm looking at Bedard as the guy who does all the heavy lifting and, and playing a full schedule after that. I, I don't know. I think we'll see a couple of guys get games, but I don't think anyone with sustainability in terms of playing a whole season. Yeah, Mitchkov won't be playing in the National Hockey League next year. We understand he's under a contract in Russia for three more years. I mean, he's the, to me, the, w- one of the most intriguing stories outside of Bedard. But again, there's no intrigue. He's going to go first overall. But uh, we've heard uh, conversations between he and the Montreal Canadiens. I mean, the, the, the amount of information, I guess, is limited. Uh, there's also, you know, pretty uh, big world conflict in, involving Russia right now. How, how do you view how teams are viewing him? Because I've also seen him, like, compared to Evgeny Malkin as far as the, one of the, the best prospects out of Russia since him and, and uh, Ovechkin. Yeah, uh, he, he is the most fascinating guy in this draft. And who jumps to get him is going to be the thing that changes the complexion of this draft. Now, the issue is, you know, he was in a difficult place for scouts to get out there and watch him live. He also made himself quite sparse in terms of being able to get to know him for teams that had scouts that were in Russia. He has since come over to North America. He's made himself available to teams even outside of the top ten. I think he's clearly understanding now that he's not going to be the first guy taken. And I think that was probably a stumbling block for at least a little while uh, with, with maybe Eagle getting in the way of that. But I think when you're about to spend that kind of money down, down the road, whatever that multi-millions looks like, you want to be really certain about the character of this player. So him getting here with boots on the ground, meeting with teams has been an important part of the process. I think Ben, he enters the conversation at San Jose at number four and then, uh, We'll see where it goes from there. But he, he is, without a doubt, the most intriguing player. Watching where he will go will we'll set this draft to fire. Yeah, is there any chance of him being able to play? Uh, and, and I understand there's prospects um, that have, have been under contract that have taken a, a, a... And Kaprizov, what, spent five years outside of the National Hockey League. I mean, is there any chance that he could arrive before his three years are up or he has to, he has to play out the, the extent of his contract? Well, I mean, based on the geopolitical situation, listen, I think the contract is honestly the, the least of the worries. If yeah. there's a, a, an impetus to, to buy out the contract, I think that can always happen. Mm-hmm. You know, having said that, uh, with all the other things that have surrounded this player, the team that 
draft them, I'm sure, is looking at a, at the three-year window in order to get them over here. So you have to be at the right point in your cycle. You have to be confident that once that first contract expires, that he will come over after that. And you have to be pretty confident in the character that if things go sideways or don't go according to plan, that he doesn't want to go back right away. So that uh, has so much to do with, with character. And that's what's the work that's being done since he's landed here in North America. But uh, I tell you, like, it, it, there's, there's plenty of intrigue around the player. I've been asking everyone I know. Guys are trying to meet with them. And uh, it's, it's going to be honest with you. I, I feel sorry for the young man because of all that he's had to endure here. And this yeah. is supposed to be the best time of your life. Yet he hasn't been able to show what he's made of in front of a lot of the higher-end scouts. And that's a little bit problematic for him. Uh, so Maple Leafs have 28, and, and we heard Brad Tree Living today not say, hey, for sure we're going to select 28th, but, like, make uh, indications that they're, they they do need to, I think he called it, like, restock the grocery shelves, that, that this team, you know, d- despite trying to win year in, year out, they can't trade every first-round pick away, that they do need to stock the, the prospect pile. Um, is there anybody you're looking at that's, like, around that range who – Maple Leaf fans should be ecstatic about if, if he ends up landing at 28 with the Toronto Maple Leafs? Yeah, I think there's a couple of guys that end up there. Dmitry Simashev is a 6'4 uh, defender who played in the MHL but also got uh, a number of games in the KHL. A big rangy guy, and when looking at the Leafs prospects, we don't, that's not something that they really have. Another guy is Nick Lardis, who played in Hamilton, was traded out of Peterborough to the Hamilton Bulldogs, scored 25 goals in his last 33 games there. He's got elite speed and elite shooting ability. So he sort of fits the mold of what Wes Clark has drafted previously. If he's allowed to kind of go down that road without uh, input uh, or a ton of input from, from Brad Tree Living, we know now that Brad will be on the floor after Calgary picks at 16, yeah. unless, of course, things change and they move their pick. So he will surely have some influence. And coming from the West, maybe he'll put a bit more of a premium on size as opposed to his predecessors. Yeah, how weird is that situation, Sam? Because, yeah, Yeah. Brad Living, he wasn't originally supposed to be able to participate in the draft at all, and now he's going to, like, step over to the Maple Leafs table after the Flames draft. I mean, maybe you can speak to how how involved uh, individual general managers are in the draft process as well, like I understand they have final say, but like that's they, they there's a lot of people that are in charge of doing the scouting and, and putting together individual teams' lists of, of prospects that 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 they intend to, to choose. But like that situation, it, it almost feels like window dressing. I, I I feel like I think Brad could probably yell over to the table from the sidelines before that Flames pick. Yeah, it's not like he's going to be locked in the you know in a room and sequestered without phones or anything like that, but. You know, to protect the sanctity of the game from the public, that's always the case when the new general manager comes. Hey, I won't take the list. I won't have any influence. I won't impart my knowledge. And uh, I'd have to say that inevitably it happens to some point. Uh, but in public eye, no, that would never happen. So it's going to be weird. It'd be cool if they put like a spotlight on him <laughs> and then he walked in like a wrestling thing. And that's what like, I said. Here, I thought that I'd would arrive. be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of music. That would be kind of cool. But I'm also looking uh, at a situation where, yeah, he's going to be sitting in the weeds. He'll have the phone out and that sort of thing. And so, uh, 
Yeah, I don't know. You know what would be great, Ben? If we could get him to sit on our panel for the first 15 picks and give us all his insight. <laughs> don't think that's going to happen, though. <laughs> that would be great. He is verbose. He likes to talk. But, yeah, probably uh, probably not on, on draft night. Hey, hey, Sam, so, like, this is we're, – we're, man, the, the pandemic – Luckily, uh, feels like it was forever ago, but we're we're still feeling the reverberations, right? Of of some junior leagues having some interrupted seasons. Like, what is the impact? Like, are, are we finally past the idea of of some players having to to make up time and and missing years of development? How has the pandemic and its lingering effects and like the the waves from a couple of years ago impacting some of these eighteen year old kids now? No, no, we, we haven't passed that that impact. And so whether it was for these guys in minor hockey or whether it was their first year playing in their respective leagues, you know, in Europe they played some games. In uh, the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, some games. Where it's probably felt most is Ontario, where they missed an entire season and a really important season. The flip side of that is what the Western Hockey League did. By moving to uh, the bubble and even playing 24 games, they allowed their 15-year-olds to play. So you're going to see a heavy contingent of WHL first-rounders and that is a large reason why. I've talked to a lot of people about that. Those 24 games allowed those players to come in at 16-year-old, their draft minus one year, and really be effective players and hit the ground running. So that, for me, is the most, uh, the most intriguing part of all of this in terms of what's happening and the lasting impact of the pandemic. Uh, last one for you, Sam. Like, is there a prospect that like, you, you put your stamp of approval on that's like, kind of your, your pet prospect where... You know, yeah, not a guy that necessarily everyone's talking about, but you in particular, like that's that's a guy that you think is going to be a great value pick in this first round. So when it comes to the first round, um, yeah, I, I really like Nick Lardis. Like I've gotten to know him. He's, uh, he's the guy who doesn't live too far from the house. He comes from a good, solid family foundation. You can see that there's been some growth with this guy already in terms of strength and, and adding some some size. Now there are some warts in this game in terms of play away from the puck, getting to the middle of the ice. I think those are things that can be addressed with the NHL development uh, programs and development personnel. Uh, but he's a guy I've really taken a shining to. And, and the reason is, Ben, I go back to, I was chasing Shane right around last year. I went into Peterborough, into the Peterborough coaches room and to a man, Derek Walzer, former NHL, Rob Wilson, Memorial Cup guy, like, they're telling me, oh, Sammy, you got to see this Lardis guy. Like, he's mm. smart. He can really move. He can really shoot it. So, I, I think when you have that sort of endorsement and then what's happened with him in Hamilton under the, the tutelage of Matt Turk, uh, the general manager there, is really, really, really neat stuff. So, he's kind of the pet project guy I'm looking at. That'd be cool. Uh, yeah, could could end up as a, as a Toronto Maple Leaf, too, like in and around yep. that range. Uh, Sammy? For sure. Uh, uh, this, is, this is your Super Bowl tomorrow. So, enjoy it, man. Thanks for this. All right, thanks a lot, Ben. Good talking to you. Likewise, there's Sam Cosentino, Sportsnet prospect, analyst, draft guru, getting set for the NHL draft tomorrow in Nashville, Tennessee, and Toronto Maple Leafs selecting number 28. So now you can uh, you can write it down. You can have a rooting interest if perhaps you haven't, like Sam, investigated all the, the hundreds and hundreds of prospects that will be selected the NHL draft, and maybe you're just going to pick it up when the broadcast starts tomorrow, Nick Lardis would be a guy that you'd like to see the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs select 28th overall. Uh, Connor Bedard going to go first overall. And man, it's, it's a, it's a year. Like we don't have this every year, man. Sometimes it's, you know, in the NBA draft, it's Anthony Bennett, no offense. And, and sometimes it's, you know, guys that aren't necessarily generational superstars, but just happen to play in a season in which, uh, 
you know, the 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 draft class is not that deep, like a Nico Hischer. But this year, in both the NBA and the NHL draft, we got guys with expectations that are to the moon. And Connor Bedard is not seven foot five; he's a little guy. But we've seen him, and not only have we seen him play in massive games, we've seen him come up with iconic moments already in international play. And it'll be thrilling to watch him play. It's honestly good that we get to see him in a traditional hockey locale, uh, a city with a big hockey-loving fan base in the Chicago Blackhawks, um, one that's had a recent run of pretty good success, so that's kind of unfair. But uh, one that uh, is also not playing on the West Coast, that you'll be able to see the Central Time Zone Chicago Blackhawks, lots of games picked up by Sportsnet uh, as they open up their season in Pittsburgh against the Penguins. All right, Toronto Blue Jays opening up a three-game series against the San Francisco Giants tonight down at Rogers Center. It's a bullpen day for the Giants. They have Logan Webb going tomorrow. Kevin Gossman gets the start in tonight's game and happening just moments ago, John Schneider has spoken to the assembled masses and uh, he talked about Alec Manoa's ill-fated first start in the Florida Complex League uh, that he gave up 11 earned runs on 10 hits, a couple of home runs, a couple of walks, and only two strikeouts in two and two-thirds innings. And not too worried about it. <laughs> Said we we like the, the work that he's put in. We're not worried about the results. And we'll go from there. Um, that's all well and good. And I, I'm sure there is like an element of truth to that. No doubt. The, the, the bigger job for Alec Manoa was not getting 18-year-olds out in the Florida Complex League. It was honestly getting in better shape from everything I've heard, being in, in better, better physical condition and maybe losing a couple of pounds. And if that is happening, I guess that's more important than, than getting outs in the Florida Complex League. But, like, can't they also go hand-in-hand? Hand? And, like, isn't the whole point of losing all the weight and getting into better shape so that you end up, it ends up impacting your results. And at the very least, we can say that that's not happening in the immediacy. I'm not saying it's a, a wake-up call to the franchise and, and the front office and, and, and isn't something totally unexpected for them, but I'm not saying it's also not. And I will say that it's, it's something totally unexpected for me. Because at the very least, man, I thought that this guy would be able to show some results in the Florida Complex League. That that wouldn't be indicative of whether he was ready to come back to the major leagues. Like, I thought we'd be having the opposite conversation where it's like, oh, here's Alec Manoa. He threw 100 pitches. He got through eight, uh, giving up one hit, and he struck out 15. And you're like, well, so what? It's the Florida Complex League. The opposite being true uh, is distressing. To say the very least. I guess there's nowhere to go but up from here. Uh, as Alec Manoa's ERA now approaching 40 can go down if he, you know, goes three and only gives up five runs in his next start in the Florida Complex League. But the other thing that this has also done is it's added, it's added more scrutiny for each successive box score. Because, yeah, people can 
try to soften the, the blow by talking about how, you know, the individual results don't matter. It's about the process. It's about the process. Not when the process is this horrific. Not when you're talking about 11 earned runs. I think it's a little bit about the results. If you're talking about 11 earned runs to uh, 17 and 18 year olds. All right. More on that with uh, Blair and Barker as they will get you set for first pitch. Blue Jays and San Francisco Giants down at Rogers Center tonight. I'll be back tomorrow on NHL Draft Day. This has been the Fan Drive Time. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan.